0: eagles entertainment
1: with the 13th pick in the 2022 nfl draft the philadelphia eagles select
2: you're listening to the journey to the draft podcast
1: Welcome to the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we finally have some college football action to break down. Week one is over. We had a ton of fun breaking down uh, this past week, and we're going to get into it right here at the top of the show, Saturday Scouting. Ben Fennell, Dane Brugler, we're here to break it all down. Who were the big winners from the weekend? We also got some big news going into the weekend that shook the college football landscape. We'll get into it right here in Saturday Scouting. After that, we have the return of our On the Clock segment. New look, new host, Gabriella DiGiovanni. He's going to join the show. She's going to be the judge and jury for Ben, Dane, and I, a weekly debate segment. This week, we're going to talk about the top defensive performance by a prospect here this past week in college football. Then we've got a brand-new segment that we are debuting here this week on the show, Under the Hood, where I welcome in Brandon Thorne, the the best out there in terms of the media sphere, breaking down and evaluating offensive line play both college and the NFL. So we're going to talk through what goes into making a quality offensive tackle. Obviously one of the most important positions in all of football. Brandon's going to join the show. We're going to talk through the specifics of tackle play here towards the end. And then we'll wrap the segment up with a scouting report where Ben and I are going to break down Eagles wide receiver AJ Brown. We're going to look at his game right now but also reflect on him coming out of college football in 2019. How do those those evaluations match up what did we learn from that evaluation just a couple years removed well we'll get into it right at the end of the show in scouting report as always best way to, to support us here on the show head on over to apple podcasts or wherever you listen to the show leave us a rating leave us a comment if you've got a question we will answer it in our draft mailbag segment in the second episode of the week every week here on the journey to the draft podcast presented by Lifebrand. that said let's get into it excited to talk through week one action it's time now for saturday scouting <music>
2: It's time for Saturday
1: Scouting. All right, excited to get things rolling here with Saturday Scouting as I welcome in Ben Fennell and Dane Bruegler. Guys, before we get into uh, Week 1 action, it was just a, a ridiculous slate here in college football over the last few days. It all ended uh, Monday night with Georgia Tech and Clemson, but... I want to get into some big news that kind of rocks the the landscape of college football going into the weekend. And that was the announcement uh, that the college football playoff will be expanding from four teams to 12. And and to me, like this is as good a news as college football could have hoped for. I think that this was what made the most sense for the sport. Uh, To me, looking at the way that things have developed over the last half decade with the playoff, Is that you have now established haves and have-nots in college football, and so, uh, guys, I'm excited to kind of get your thoughts here, Dane. I'll come to you first. Um, We don't know when these changes are going to come into effect. Uh, It could be as early as 2024, possibly as late as like 2026, 2027. That date, as of this point, has not been established. But uh, within the next couple of years, we're going to get a 12-team playoff.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And in typical college football fashion, uh, they butted heads on this the last few years. It seems like all summer they talked about it, but that they weren't close and then randomly the friday before opening weekend they're like oh yeah 12 games all right that our 12 team playoff that sounds good so you know this this will be uh exciting hopefully it happens sooner rather than later um the 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 conference champions uh getting the uh automatic in is interesting the buys are interesting so the if uh last year for example georgia had that amazing regular season but because they lost alabama in the conference championship game. They would not have had a buy. Alabama Correct. would have had to buy. So that's so there, there's a lot of interesting parts about winning, still winning your conference, and how important that is. I think uh, one thing that I do really want to see is uh, a lot of these playoff games. Let let's keep them on campus. You know, I, I, what makes college football so great? is it's the pageantry, right? It's the tailgating, the traditions of each one of these stadiums and fan bases and programs. Uh, you know, the home field advantage should matter. That should be a big deal. So the higher the seed, you should have that edge. So very happy with this expanded playoff.
3: Um, but uh, hopefully we can in, uh, keep some of these games on campus. And I just feel like over the past few years, we're getting away from like bowl prestige. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's all about the national championship. And I feel like letting teams work towards that ultimate goal and a tournament style is inevitably what everybody wants. Yep. Would you rather lose in the quarterfinals going to the national championship game or go win the Alamo bowl? Right. You know, it's that type of conversation. I would rather compete for the, the big dog for the big chip. And then however far we get, whether we're invited, we win a game, that type of exposure, it's, you know, advertising chips for your program. And that's what you're going to do for the next class and show that we're a competing program. We are two games away. We get to play on a national stage like this and, Uh, You know, when it comes down at the end of the season, those are the games that the NFL puts the most value in. Yep, And it's the iron sharpens iron at the pinnacle of college football. There's really nothing that replaces it personally i was going for the 64 team double elimination round <laughs> robin that's I think a, but that's that got the thing. shelved. I don't so. think
1: it's crazy like to say like obviously it wasn't going to get 64 right but to me like getting to 12 like i was i was not against 16 like i was not again like i to me like you you've seen other obviously football leagues but like in the fcs they've got a huge playoff like you can make that work um and dane to your point i do agree like uh, especially like the initial round let's get the let's get those games on campus but if you want to maintain that bowl prestige you want to make sure that the Rose Bowl and the Fiesta Bowl and those bowls are, are you know still mean something. You can make them a the national championship game, but you can make them the the, the quote unquote conference t- championships, the divisional round, right? Like you can make those the bowl games and still have teams work their way up to that. Ben,
3: as long as the money, I think at each stage of the bracket equates, yes, you know, being advantageous and being in that stage, it's really the conversation of do you want to win the NIT? Right. do you want to make the Sweet Sixteen? Yep. And I think there's a lot of programs that would rather make the Sweet 16. Yeah, and I think it's uh,
2: for, for you know college football. It, it really feels like a lot of times if if you have a bad September, it's kind of like season over. You know, like you, you're out of it. And but now, even if you do lose a game or two in September, you can still get back up there from one of those at larges, or maybe even win your conference uh, and, and get that automatic bid. So a lot more teams are going to be involved. And I mean, how I think about March Madness time? How how uh, you know we have so much fun with. Uh, you know, a 15 beating a two or, you know, whatever these, these upsets are. I mean, it's gonna be a lot of fun if uh, I, I think we'd all agree the, the hierarchy of college football, the top, just say, say, especially this season, say there's three with Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. And then there's a little bit of a drop-off to the next tier. And, yeah, your Clemson's, maybe Notre Dame's in there. Um, But I think there's, you know, there's it wouldn't be a shock necessarily, or at least it'd be a lot more realistic to see a, a 12 knock off a, knock off a five or whatever it ends up being. So that, that'll be a lot of fun to see some of those matchups.
1: Yeah, and, and to the, the point I made at the very top, just in terms of like the haves and have-nots, if you look at recruiting rankings on a yearly basis, just over the last like two years, the teams that, have, that do the best in recruiting are all the teams that have been to the playoffs since the playoff has been instituted. Like Even like Washington and Michigan State, the teams that have only been like once or twice, those teams still lean on that playoff berth. And so that's what I mean by creating that list of haves and have-nots in college football. Now, by expanding the field, well, now you're creating some more natural parity. And I think that will be big for the sport moving forward.
3: And the other big piece of news, which I don't think we have to dive too deep into, <clears throat> but college football approved the transfer window which I think is also a huge conversation point. It looks like there's going to be a 60-day per year window for them to enter the portal and make a decision. I don't have a lot of the details. I know some things were decided six days ago at that big meeting. So that's also... Taking steps in the right direction of you know obviously settling the landscape of all this player movement
1: no question I think that obviously there's a lot that yet that is yet to be decided uh, from that standpoint Ben you and you have talked about this and we've talked about this in the podcast is uh that's that's going to be so important just for just a, even like a, a quality of life standpoint for teams and for the athletes like it's just it's madness right now, so any way to kind of uh, I mean, organize that. week
3: one, which is essentially two weeks in the college football season. Within the last twenty days, there's been some high-profile transfers. Right, and, you know, former five-star Alabama kid showed up at Michigan yep. three weeks ago. A quarterback lost a job. Suddenly, he's on a roster of another team already. It's crazy. So there's just it's literally the wild west of transferring. You need some guardrails. You need some windows. And I think they're taking the right steps.
1: All right. Well, let's get into uh, this weekend's action here, guys. We'll give out our game balls. Dane, you're up first here this week. Uh, who was the standout player from the weekend? Give us your game ball.
2: There is not a more interesting prospect or player in college football than Florida quarterback Anthony Richardson. Uh, And he gets my game ball because of how he played Saturday night, leading the Gators. uh, Over Utah uh, in the swamp, over 70% completions in the game. He averaged only seven yards per attempt. Uh, They didn't really let him uh, just let loose on throws downfield, but he took what the defense gave him. Uh, He also had over 100 yards rushing, 9.6 yards per carry, three rushing touchdowns. Uh, now, I, I think when you watch him uh, on tape, you get the inexperience is clear. I mean, that there, there's no doubt about that. He's drifting in the pressure. Uh, you know, his eyes need to be a little bit more efficient with how he's working through uh, some of his reads. But the raw talent is just so impressive. 6'4", almost 240 pounds. We've talked about him before. Impressive athlete. Uh, Such a smooth stroke. uh, Has an absolute cannon of an arm. Uh, And his ability to routinely create those second-chance plays is what really makes him so unique. Breaking tackles in the backfield, avoiding sacks, keeping plays alive. Uh, He is a freak show. And I think any conversation about the top quarterbacks in this draft must include... Uh, Richardson and his potential that it was just a second career start against Utah. So still have a ways to go with him, but you know what, the evaluation period is year round. And if the draft were held tomorrow, there would be a lot of teams lining up to bet on his potential and what he'll continue to grow into because there's just such a, a rare mix of talent with Richardson.
1: Dane, don't freak out on me. I don't want the, the hair to stand up on the back of your neck, but I don't know when your next mock draft is uh, for the Athletic. I'm sure it's a, a few weeks away. Uh, my guess is we'll be seeing Anthony Richards' name or Anthony Richards' name uh, on that list. Um, I, w- I want to stay at the, at the QB class uh, and just talk about Clayton Toon, the, the super senior for Houston. Huge game against UTSA, 22 for 32, Over 200 yards, three touchdowns, another 50 yards and a touchdown uh, on the ground as well. Uh, Leads them down the field. They score a go-ahead field goal, 24-21, with under 30 seconds left. UTSA responds. They kick a field goal, send it to overtime. So now you get into double overtime, he gets uh, QB power in the red zone, uh, punches it in, and then gets the leaping score uh, in triple overtime on a two-point play to give them the win. So uh, Clayton Toon, this is a guy that we talked about a little bit a few weeks back on the group of five preview, or the outside the power five preview, I should say. Uh, Had a little bit of buzz with the way that he threw the ball down uh, in Thibodeau at the Manning Passing Academy this summer. So keep an eye here on Clayton Toon, a little bit of an older prospect, uh, but he took over uh, as the starter a couple of years ago for the Cougars in that Air raid offense, uh, and he has been very, very efficient. As a passer. So, in terms of the, this senior class, keep an eye here on Clayton Toon, one of the top seniors uh, at the position. Uh, ben, who's your game ball this week?
3: I got to say, guys, I love some of these conference matchups early in the season. Yep. There's no like grooming period. And Syracuse to Louisville, week one, they face each other. Sean Tucker came right out the gates, running back for Syracuse, 183 all purpose yards, 98 on the ground and a touchdown. But I love the six receptions for 85 yards and a touchdown highlighted by a beautiful tunnel screen where you just saw him take off and separate and play at a different speed than everybody else. That is not a surprise. This kid runs to 60 meters for Syracuse track. He has legit burst, legit acceleration, mm. legit long speed. He only had 18 receptions last year. He had six already in week one. So yep. I love the concerted effort to get him involved in the pass game. And one other scheme usage note, a lot of gap runs. Mm. Almost all of them were gap runs against Louisville. Nearly an 80% zone runner last year. I loved his zone, uh, outside zone feel yeah. pressing the holes. As the we talked about him, lanes, yeah, right. The vision. I don't know if I love him in the gap schemes, but he still turned out nearly 100 yards, 183 all-purpose. Sean Tucker, one of the best running backs in the country.
1: I love it. Well, let's get to the next category here, our one-play takeaway, one play that stood out most from the weekend. And uh, I'll lead us off here. I'm going to go back all the way to th- last Thursday night, backyard brawl, one of the big things we talk about with conference realignment in college football. We miss some of those natural rivalries. We haven't had a West Virginia-Pitt game in over a decade. Well, uh, this one, you know, we, uh, we, we got our, our share uh, here in this one. This was a really fun game, back and forth. Uh, West Virginia uh, up 31-24 over Pitt, Bryce Ford Wheaton, the wide receiver for the Mountaineers. He's got seven catches for 83 yards and two touchdowns at this point late in the fourth quarter. They're putting it away. Uh, they're, They're putting the ball late in the game. He gets a tackle on a punt return uh, inside the 20-yard line. Who makes the stop? It's Bryce Ford Wheaton. So you like him there uh, on uh, on special teams coverage. We've talked about that, Ben. You know, the, the skill players, you like your best players playing on special teams. Just kind of shows the mentality. Bryce Ford Wheaton, look, it was a little, little bit shy of a, of a face mask penalty. Might have been there. But love the fact that he's out there on coverage, making a play in a critical moment in a rivalry game. Now, Pitt goes down and scores. Give a little bit of love there to Keaton Slovis, really, really poised on that drive. So just over three minutes left, JT Daniels goes to to Ford Wheaton on a hitch route it hits him right in the hands. It bounces right through and turns into a pick six the other way. So you got the, a little bit of a roller coaster there with Bryce Ford Wheaton. And depending on your point of view, you might remember this game going a number of different ways. He was really productive, made some plays on coverage in special teams, and then had that critical drop. How does he bounce back from that down the stretch? Ford Wheaton, very, very talented player. I'm excited to see uh, how he shakes that off uh, down the stretch through the rest of the season here, guys. But one thing I will say... We got to have the Pitt West Virginia rivalry. That's got to be like a yearly, like Week One, Week Zero battle. That that game was so much fun. I remember the last time those two teams played. Uh, and always a fun matchup. But uh, Ben, take us through yours. Uh, your one play takeaway. Well,
3: Let me find something here in this Georgia Oregon game. And i was so happy to see safety Chris Smith show up right away. Mm. That first quarter, I think it was the opening drive, had a huge TFL in the alley. You just saw the speed, the thumping when he arrived. Really secure tackler. This is a guy that started, I think, 11 or 12 games last year just buried with, obviously, NFL names and prospects, and it's his time to shine. And he has the ball skills. He has the play speed. He was a corner pedigree player coming out of high school. And then the next quarter, they try to hit that little bubble pump seam play. Bo Nix threw it like it was just on the whiteboard. I'm going to blindly throw the seam after pumping. Well, we practice that daily in practice in the SEC. Everybody runs that. It's where a lot of the big plays happen in the SEC, those double moves. Chris Smith was all over it. Great eyes. He read the route, then found the ball, plucked it easily, and it was pretty much all she wrote. I thought Chris Smith in the first half, those two plays were bone crushing. The TFL, I really thought, set the tone early. And then that second quarter pick, was kind of all she wrote. I think they went up twenty-one-three or twenty-one-nothing at that point, and yep. uh, Bo Nix was swimming at that point.
1: Of the high-profile matchups, that one was the most like just decisive victory uh in terms of uh, the weekend. Georgia, huge, huge win over the Oregon Ducks, breaking in a new coaching staff. And
3: Georgia special. Like Oregon's a decent football team, so don't get yes. mistaken. Georgia is special, 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 and that's what it looks like. Oregon will not see another team like that this year. Yeah, they might run the table. Uh, at this point in the Pac 12, mm. Georgia is special. Dan, how about you? They are, and if they could play Bo Nicks a bow next couple more times, they might have another five
2: first rounders, uh, in the next year's draft. But I'm gonna stick with that game. Uh, but I'm gonna go on the offensive side. Uh, with running back Kenny McIntosh, uh, saw only 23 snaps against Oregon, but he made him count. He had a game best nine catches, 117 receiving yards. Uh, so sharing the backfield duties, but his ability out of the backfield as a pass catcher really stood out. There was one play where lined up, uh, he was actually in the slot to the boundary, uh, lined up against Justin Flo, one of the most athletic linebackers in the country. Uh, McIntosh wins with a simple out route. You see the quickness he gave, uh, Setson Bennett an easy target. And then McIntosh was able to avoid the tackle, tiptoed down the sideline, turned it into a 15 yard gain. Uh, so, I mean, it should have been two yards, but he turned into more, uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, the carries the workload, how that is determined throughout the season. Uh, so I don't know that the final numbers, the final production is going to blow anybody away, but the traits that this guy offers, uh, are awesome. So I, I, anybody that watched that game, I don't think there's any reason to explain why he was my number one senior running back prospect going into the year.
1: Mm, yeah, a loaded backfield once again at Georgia, and McIntosh is a guy that's definitely uh, going to see plenty of volume there. But. I
3: don't know about you guys. I write down, in his bio, did not transfer. Right. is a four-star that barely got on the field his first two years. Same that Brian Robinson at Alabama last year. Yep. Brian Robinson. You're damn right. Exactly I'm writing it. in his bio, it's did not thing. transfer. Mm. TCU quarterback Max Duggan didn't win the QB competition this year. He stayed. He had to finish some of the game, I think, last weekend. You're damn right. I'm putting that in his bio. Did not transfer. It's too much adversity in college football, and the kids just hitting the hitting the bus ticket and getting out of town if they don't uh, you know, get the spot they want. As a
2: Brian Robinson waited his turn and t- became a fourth-round pick. I mean, you, you list the running backs out at Alabama ahead of him, and it's like, okay, you can understand it. Same thing with, uh, with McIntosh. So you look at Guys like James Cook, Samir White, uh, even DeAndre Swift. So, yeah, he does deserve credit for that. Now he's getting his chance, and so far, so good.
1: Impressive opener. 23 snaps, 17 touches or something. That's crazy. Crazy. Um, All right, well, let's get to our, uh, our down-the-road guys. Our future studs, ineligible for next spring's draft, but just some names to file away for the future. Uh Ben, you're going to do us the honor to start this one off.
3: Uh, George has got a true freshman Again, safety, yeah. Starks out there. I'm not even going to say his first name. He Al-Kai. won the state long jump champion. He's a 10, meter kid. He's 6'1", 205. Oh, yeah, he played the most defensive snaps against Oregon. <laughs> so he was out there a ton, stark safety, really good player. And just a little side note, Wake Forest quarterback Mitch Griffiths.
1: Oh, you, t- you tweeted about this Had come in for Sam
3: Hartman yeah. with that injury over the summer, redshirt freshman. Guys, this kid was slinging it out there. Great ball placement, working the whole field, good anticipation, out of structure, hitting the checkdowns, really impressive tape. He's a munchkin. He's like 6'1", 195. He doesn't really look the part, but that ball is coming out with some zip and well-placed. So redshirt freshman quarterback out there at Wake Forest, uh, taking the reins over for Hartman.
1: All right. Well, Ben uh, or Dane, you, you've got the, the honors here for number two, and, and I will say you can get extra points if you describe your player as a munchkin.
2: Uh, Well, I'm going to pull a Ben and go with two players. Um, I have uh, on on offense, North Carolina quarterback, Drake May. uh, Oh, my gosh. This guy was electric against App State. uh, Passed for 352 yards, four touchdowns. Also had 76 yards rushing uh, and a touchdown on the ground. I was just really impressed with this kid's traits. Uh, There's so much potential with him. I don't know how good App State's defense is. I'm a big Nick Hampton fan. I think he's going to be – has a good chance to be a day-two pick. But outside of him, I don't know just how good that App State defense is. So it'll be interesting to watch May, the rest of that ACC schedule, uh, to find out. And then on defense, uh, Ohio State defensive tackle Michael Hall, uh, another redshirt freshman who just jumped off the film. I mean, Notre Dame could not keep him blocked. Quickness, power. The Buckeyes, you think about it, they've had some decent interior defensive line prospects over the years. Uh, Guys like Draymond Jones and Togi and even going back to Jonathan Hankins. Hall looks different. Uh, I mean, he, he has a chance to be the best defensive tackle from Ohio State in a long, long time. So I can't wait to see this guy develop.
1: Mm, yeah, he was, he was absolutely a player that stood out to me watching that game uh, on Saturday night. Michael Hall, one of the more dominant players uh, on the field. Um, and speaking of dominance, I, I will take a guy that's a little bit of low-hanging fruit, if you would say well, who was the top non-eligible player uh, for the 2023 draft coming into the season. It would probably be USC quarterback Caleb Williams, the transfer from Oklahoma. He follows Lincoln Riley out west to L.A. Uh, comes through a little bit of a hairy start for USC, a little bit closer than you'd like against Rice, but uh, talent wins out in the end, and they end up blowing the doors off uh, the Owls down there. But 19-22, uh, to 22, 249 yards, two touchdowns, another 68 yards rushing in the debut for Caleb Williams. You see the athleticism. You see the arm talent. Uh, opening drive, touchdown to Jordan Addison, another transfer, the reigning Blitnikoff Award winner uh, at wide receiver. So uh, to me, I'm going to go Caleb Williams, sophomore quarterback for USC. Uh, Lincoln Riley making things interesting. This is a, a team that's struggled to consistently put points on the board over the last few years, and uh, they put up, what, a 60-burger uh, against Rice this past week. So uh, keep an eye here on USC and the sophomore quarterback Caleb Williams. Uh, Guys, before we get to our next segment here and On the Clock, we're going to really quickly uh, recap some players that the three of us have studied on film. Some guys we've done some deep dives on. Uh, Dane, I'll go to you first. Who's a guy that you've studied over the last week that you want to be able to bring to the table?
2: Yeah, you know, I know a lot of evaluators really like the tight ends at Utah, uh, but I think the top tight end on the West Coast is at Oregon State, and that's Luke Musgrave. Uh, didn't really have a great body of work uh, on last year's tape, uh, but he was the top target in the Beavers offense on Saturday night against Boise State finished with six catches 89 yards and a touchdown has that long gait, easy easily accelerate uh, either down the seam or outside I really liked his ball skills he can pluck the ball keep it away from defenders really balanced after the catch. Uh, so he's not just a possession guy. Uh, I, you know, just watching him on tape, I saw a player who can establish himself as a top five senior tight end prospect in this draft.
1: Yeah, this a guy. I mean, there's a matchup coming into the week that you're excited about because of Boise State's uh, JL Skinner. Uh, so he and Musgrave on the field together it makes them for some interesting, uh, interesting matchups there. I'm excited to go back and watch that one. On tape um, for me, I'm going to go to the Midwest and I want to talk about Wisconsin senior defensive tackle Keanu Benton, who I've had a chance to study now uh, from from last season. And this kid, look, he, he's a house inside. I mean, he, he is a big boy. He's like uh, you know six two and a half, three hundred and ten pounds. Holds up really well on contact one on one. You're not going to move him. He has outstanding technique taking on double teams. He's happy to be that space eater. But if you need him to be a vertical player, he he's got a little bit of juice off the ball as well. I'd like to see him get a little bit uh, more refined as a He'll lean heavily into one of two things. He's going to go straight bull rush, or he loves that quick arm over move, and that's that's something he pulled out uh, time and time again to try and win off the ball. I would not call him a fast twitch athlete inside. He's not that kind of player, but he plays with outstanding hustle. He's really really tough. He can defend against the run. So I look at a guy that can be a, a really solid three down player, but I think ideally you probably want to take him off the field on pass downs in the NFL, and so that's going to I think kind of cap uh, what you think the ceiling will be from a draft standpoint, but. But at the end of the day, this kid's a really, really good football player. Dan, I know you're pretty high on him. We've talked about how, how this defensive tackle class is a, a really good one. And I think Benton is going to be right in the mix there. He's, he's certainly one of the top seniors, um, but I think a, a really impressive player. Uh, excited to watch more of Keanu Benton. And by the way, I thought his bowl game was maybe the best that he looked last year. I thought that was where he looked the most rangy and he looked the, the quickest off the ball. So I'm interested to see what he looks like here uh, in his final season on campus at Wisconsin. Uh, ben, take us home. Uh, our final segment, or- Final player here before we get into on the clock.
3: Yeah, I love that wrestling background of Benton, by the way. Any guy that knows how to really work the leverage, sink the hips, and Luke Musgrave. Nice touchdown last week off a little Y leak action, which you gotta have if you're a stretch zone team, yeah. which Oregon State is beautiful out there. But we're gonna talk about uh, Rasheed Rice out of SMU receiver, very interesting. Uh, vertical threat receiver great opener against north texas seven for 158 and a touchdown five of those targets were downfield caught four of them really interesting profile receivers at 6'1, 203 came on the campus as a string bean at 177 he's put on good weight he's gotten stronger led the team in receptions last year that was with danny gray and reggie roberson at over 600 yards in 2020 as well really switched duties and role though in 2021 moved to more of a big slot type of position previously was an outside the numbers receiver and I thought that slot role really fit his skill set pretty well cleaned up the drops and uh I think was a much more productive player, being that slot presence. He's a really competitive blocker, has really good balance, good lower body strength, good body control, really strong hands, and competitive at the catch point. This guy is a legit vertical gear, and they work him in some bunches and some stacks, and get him rolling off the line of scrimmage. And out there in those group of five teams, you get some strange quarters off coverage over that number two mm-hmm. slot. He get five, six, seven, eight, ten yards head start and just cook safeties with that cushion and his speed. So if you give him room to work the speed, he can really threaten you vertically. The one thing, I just don't know if his hands are that natural. The drops are really an issue. Almost all of them were concentration drops. Cleaned it up a little bit, um, but I think it's going to be an issue down the stretch and just being a sure-handed receiver at the next level. And also a pretty limited route tree in Rhett Lashley's offense, previously Sonny Dyke's. Not really an NFL-style route tree or what he'll be expected to run. Reminds me of like a Des Fitzpatrick out of Louisville a few years ago, Byron Pringle uh, a few years before that. Both of those were 4'4 kids, 6'1", 205 type of style Uh, that can run, and that were competitive. So I think Rice right now is flirting with like an early day three profile. Right. Uh, We'll see if he can put together a good season, but good opener out the gates.
1: Yeah, and certainly a guy, like you said, that some people are buzzing about in terms of what he could be uh, at the next level. Dan, I know you've talked about Rasheed Rice here on the podcast. You've written about him uh, as one of the top seniors in this wide receiver group. Well, guys, uh, we've got uh, three more players that we're going to hit on here in our On the Clock segment, the debut here for 2022. Let's get to it now. It's time to go On the Clock.
2: On the clock
1: all right time to keep the show rolling now with uh, the 2022 edition of on the Clock as I welcome in our friend Gabriella Di Giovanni to host this year's segment Ella, welcome to the show for the first time
0: Thanks, Brian. I'm excited for this one
1: yeah it's it's gonna be fun. so and for our listeners that maybe didn't listen last fall, basically what happens here in this uh, segment is it's a, a weekly competition where it's basically a, it's not a necessarily a debate segment. But Dane, Ben, and I are going to make arguments for different players. And Ella's going to kind of be the the judge and jury here. She's going to set the topic every single week. Uh, The three of us will debate players and make arguments for whoever the winner is on any given topic. And then Ella will make the decision based off who makes the best argument. We saw plenty of examples the last two years where... Maybe the best player doesn't win, the best argument wins uh, at the end of every week. So, uh, Ella, I'll let you tee up the topic this week, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll start off with uh, who's first. Uh, I'm first this week, then Dane, then Ben. So, uh, Ella, I'll let you tee it up.
0: All right, here we go. For the first one, I want the three of you to give your best take on who had the best individual defensive performance in week one. Frank.
1: All right, so uh, for me, this one was really easy, and I'm going to go to the Big Ten. I'm going to speak to Ellis Hart here. I'm going to go to the Big Ten. Uh, Michigan State pass rusher Jacoby Windman uh, was transferred in from UNLV this past offseason where uh, he was an all-Mountain West performer as a defensive end a couple years ago before moving to linebacker last year and he was once again, all Mountain West as a linebacker. So he arrives in East Lansing this, this summer uh, as a linebacker initially when he first gets to campus, but they move him to defensive end late in the preseason process. Well, that paid off. Seven tackles, Four sacks, one forced fumble. They win 35 to 13 last Friday night against Western Michigan from the MAC. He wins Walter Camp Foundation National Defensive Player of the Week. Um, the buzz about him was kind of building throughout the course of training camp, Ella, and I was kind of interested to see how he would perform. Well, he followed through with a dominant Week One performance. He catches the eyes of a lot of people. Jim Nagy, uh, who also who always will like post out clips after a College Football Saturday of a guy that stood out here or there in the. Season ranks. Well, Jim went out and he put a full out Twitter thread. It was like three or four clips long. That is not common uh, for Jim Nagy. So uh, you're getting some love there from the senior bowl for Jacoby Windman. And when you go back and just watch how he was able to win first sack. Outstanding ghost move to get the corner for a sack, turn the corner, really nice savvy at the top of the arc. The next one was even uh, an even better one. To me, a double hand swipe versus the left tackle showed the ability to string multiple moves together because then he beats the running back. They're trying to throw extra attention his way. Outstanding athleticism and closing speed. A couple of hustle sacks thrown in there late in the down, both playing through contact and in pursuit. And then, then to me, like looking at the numbers, they kind of back it up. Of all the defenders in the Power Five conferences this past week and week one, every single position on that side of the ball, he ranks number one in the pass rush win rate stat from PFF from any defender with at least 25 pass rush snaps. He got home on a third of his pass rushes. Typically what you see with those efficiency numbers is that the more rushes you have, the lower the efficiency drops, right? But for him, He had 25 rushes, and he had the best win rate of anybody coming off the ball. Uh, PFF, very, very happy with how uh, Winman did on his first game here with the uh, with the Spartans. I'm going to go with uh, our friend Ike Reese here uh, and go Sparty with uh, Jacob Jacoby Winman as my winner here for uh, for this week and on the clock.
0: All right, Fran's coming in hot. He's starting off strong. Ben, you're next. Who do you got? My next year is Dane? Oh,
1: no, Dane, Dane's next this week. That's right. Oh, so all right. Be, you're all good. Uh, Dane, What do you got here for us this week? So, for top defensive
2: performance, I have to go with FCS transfer, who is now creating a ton of buzz at Florida State, pass rusher Jared Verse. And, look, I'm not going to take anything away from uh, Winman because uh, he was awesome in week one, no doubt about it. But, you know, it was against a MAC opponent. And Michigan State was going to win with him, without him. But for defensive end Jared Verse, Florida State, they don't beat LSU without him. Uh, Tigers, very few answers uh, to keep him blocked. The box score said he had two and a half tackles for loss, two sacks. That's a great night. Doesn't really illustrate just how dominant and disruptive he was. On the tape, he forced three holding penalties. He consistently moved Jaden Daniels from a spot, flushing the quarterback from the pocket, forcing him to run. They, they had very little passing game uh, at LSU because of that pass rush. You see burst. Physical hands, closing speed, his active play style consistently affects the game and the scoreboard. So not only the frequent visits to the backfield, but he also blocked a chip-shot field goal early in the game. If LSU has three extra points, it doesn't matter that they miss that extra point and lose the game. LSU probably wins that game if they had that field goal. But again, Jared Verse not only affecting the game with his uh, ability to get after the quarterback, but you saw it on special teams as well. So this guy uh, in two games, big time uh, uh, newcomer to the FBS ranks. And I I promise you, if he was a senior, Jim Nagy would have tweeted about him five times, but (laughs) he's an underclassman. So Jim Nagy can't tweet about him yet.
0: All right, Rog, already getting a little chippy. I like this. I like it. All right, Ben. Now, finally, to you, wrap this up.
3: Well, I think Dane hit it on the head there with the quality of competition. Jacoby Windman, you know, they played Western Michigan. They were going to win with or without him. And when you're talking about the quality of competition, we're talking about what are those tapes that scouts are going to go to first? Mm. We're not going to pull out that Western Michigan tape for Windman, and we're probably not going to pull out this LSU tape for Jared Verse. Went up against a true freshman left tackle, like a fourth- or fifth-year kid at right tackle, barely 290. Really not a quality Mm. competition of tackle. Not to mention, your two players— Two transfers. So there was no prep in knowing how they were going to be used, you know, previously. So I think Western Michigan, LSU had a bit of a learning curve on the fly. That's why I'm going to go with outside linebacker Nick Hampton at App State who played up. A group of five team played up. They faced North Carolina, nearly knocked them off in that wild fourth quarter. They lost 63-61, but Hampton showed up nearly every drive. Six pressures, three sacks, a forced fumble, four run stops. He looked long. He looked explosive. He was productive nearly every down, every third and long out there. I think Nick Hampton, when you're talking about scouts and projecting forward, you're going right to this North Carolina tape. And next week, they play Texas A&M. It's those two tapes you're going to pull out to see what Nick Hampton brings. I thought the spotlight was on him. All the tape in the world was out there on how he was going to be used. They studied all summer, and he was still productive. So I think the scouts are going to look right at this tape, the better competition against North Carolina, and Nick Hampton showed up.
0: What am I supposed to do with this, friend? When you first asked me to do this, I thought <laughs> this would be easy. How the heck am I
1: supposed to pick a winner? I, I will say mid form by both Ben and Dane. Ben, that might be the best argument you've ever made for a player in three years. I just want to let you thing.
3: know, Ella, that my strategy, I like to be a little disparaging to the other <laughs> two. It's all part of the debate. It's all part of the gamesmanship out here. If I got to tug down those two a little bit to elevate my guy, you got to do <laughs> what you got to do.
0: You do have an advantage as the third person because you can definitely hit on you know, the well, yes, and no, I feel like then. they took
3: the low hanging fruit, the studs of the weekend. I had to do a little work, a little digging, a little massaging of the conversation, and I, I felt like I put down a home run argument there. <laughs>
1: All right, so is this is well, th- Three pass rusher, Three pass rushers. This is tough, Ellen. I'm interested to see who you are. And I don't uh, want to cite,
3: there. you know, NFL Network's Daniel Jeremiah tweeting about Nick Hampton yesterday and putting on the tape and how excited he was about him. But we're, we're, you know, I don't want to name drop him. App State.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's an App State guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's slow down that one there. All
0: right. So this is where I need to choose now?
1: This is it. This is where you, you, uh, you make the call here, <sighs>
0: This is a tough one. Okay, so we have between Jacoby Windman... From Michigan State, Jarrett Verse. from Florida State, and Nick Hampton from App State. Yikes. Okay. Based on arguments only, not my opinion on those individual performances. Of course. I'm going with Ben.
1: Wow, Ben, we're coming, <laughs> hitting cleanup, and he ends up uh, knocking it out of the park. Really? Uh, dude, like I said, of the three years that we've been doing this segment, I thought that was your best argument you've made on a player. I'm gonna, yeah, I I'm going to gonna work points. a little bit.
3: I felt like you took the two low-hanging fruits. I was really close tonight. even picking Hampton. I was going to go with a corner or two, but I wanted to stick with the edge rusher there to keep it all in the family. Um, but App State, I thought they played really strong against a better competition. I thought Hampton really showed. How many up. points did
1: they give up? Oh, how many points? How many points did they give up? Sixty-three was it? Well, listen, we
3: <laughs> can't do everything out there. I mean, we had some issues on the back yeah. end. Ella, the safeties were all over the place. Dang, the corners now this is were making not Choice
0: look bad. <laughs> it was it's a
3: fun awesome sixty-two argument. point fourth quarter, I think, between those teams. You know, Nick Hampton couldn't do it all out there, but he certainly tried.
1: So the, the way this will work is that next week the, the order will flip a little bit. I'll have last pick. Dane will have first pick. Ben will have second pick. And we'll, uh, we'll keep going here. But uh, Ella, this was, a, this was a fun maiden voyage here for you on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Excited for you to join us next week uh, right here on On the Clock.
2: What makes those great players great? It's time to roll up our sleeves and go under the hood.
1: All right, so for the very first edition of our Under the Hood, which, by the way, outstanding job with that uh, that audio stinger uh, for the for this new segment. But uh, Under the Hood, Brandon Thorne, uh, a guy that I've been friends with for a long time. You could check out his Trench Warfare Substack. It is. A plus content make sure you check it out I just dropped an outstanding uh, series where uh, Brandon you highlighted the top 50 linemen uh, across the NFL and just outstanding analysis as always follow Brandon's work on Twitter at Brandon Thorne NFL Brandon, welcome back to the show man it's been a few months since you've been on journey with us
4: yeah yeah man it's it's fun to be back. I'm always excited to talk so yeah this this is awesome I appreciate it.
1: So we're going to talk through the offensive tackle position here for this segment and uh, right tackle, left tackle. I feel like that's you kind of throw that out the window. I think most people feel that way at this point, Uh, even like fans, I think have come accustomed uh, to that line of thinking, but we are talking offensive tackles only. And I get the first question I want to lead it off with. What is your non-negotiable at this position? It's hard for a guy to be great at offensive tackle. If he doesn't have X, what is that in your mind?
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I've been thinking about it a lot. I thought of a way to summarize it is to get the trait that covers the most aspects of the position. And to me, that's play speed. So, you know, I define that by kind of how a player marries athletic ability and mental processing. So that to me at offensive tackle is is critical and and really probably paramount, you know, over everything else, because it covers so, so, so many things, you know, how quickly a guy gets out of his stands. First of all, you know, how, how he starts the rep, which is kind of a, a blend of athletic ability and processing. Cause you know, it's not purely one or the other, it's kind of a mix and that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the rep. So, uh, that falls into play speed to me, how quickly you can get to your spot, how quickly you can get to a landmark, you know, how, wherever you need to be based on that passing concept um you know based on how you want to attack or set on your pass rusher you know whoever you're facing so that to me is play speed and since pass protection is king you know that to me is the most important thing and then play speed also you know translates into the run game you know how quickly you can get to spots how quickly you can get into fits um how quickly you could climb you know release get up to second and third level targets um I think we a lot of people think that's purely athleticism, but it really isn't. So much of it is timing, so much of it is spacing, spatial awareness, um, understanding your body positioning in relation to the defender. That all to me kind of goes in that bucket of play speed because it factors in athletic ability and processing skills. So I think play speed, you know, for, for almost any position really, but since tackle is kind of the hardest one to find, um, in a lot of ways, I think uh, if you have a baseline of play speed, you have a really good chance of uh, being a you know starter in the NFL.
1: And that's what's so funny is that, you know, if you for most people, you wouldn't think like offensive linemen that speed would be the first thing. And I know that you and I have had this conversation about this trait uh, over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast in the past is just, you know, when you look at a guy's ability to get out of his stance, you and I have both done studies over the course of like an entire season or two seasons looking at every single sack. And I was shocked when I did that study of just how many sacks were because like the lineman just didn't get out of his stance in time. And even if he just get, didn't just get blown by – he was just in immediate recovery mode and was unable to recover. And so that uh, you, know, you couldn't have, uh, you can't use your hands well because your feet aren't there and because it's all started with your get off and your ability to get out of your stance. So uh, I'm so glad that you kind of made that your non-negotiable, something we talk about right off the top here. So putting that aside, what are then the three most important on-field traits uh, for the offensive tackle position in your mind? Take play speed, put it to the side. What would be the next three? And you can kind of uh, just kind of zoom through these. Uh, what would what would be those three traits in your mind?
4: Yeah, since play speed was kind of cheating because it was two traits combined into one, um, you know, that, that takes kind of two, honestly, off the table. But the three next most important traits, I think the first one is definitely play strength. Um, that's probably if I had to pick one for all the positions on the offensive line, it might be play strength, uh, and and just the ability to put yourself in positions of strength, right. Uh, where your base is strong, where you have a balance and where you're able to create or halt movement at the point of attack. I mean, that that's kind of the name of the game in the trenches, you know, on both sides of the ball. And if you could do that, you can anchor, you could, you know, create some movement in the run game. You could stay attached to blocks because you're strong, you know, from the ground up. I mean, that's, that's everything for offensive lines. So that kind of, you know, goes hand in hand with play speed. Like those are like, you know, one, a one B, but, um, the next one would be competitive toughness. You know, that's definitely, uh, very high on the list, a critical factor. Um, so that's just the ability to play with, uh, consistent effort, through the echo of the whistle, you know, game in, game out, you know, across seasons, regardless of the situation or the uh, competition. So, yeah, if a guy has a high level of that, that that goes a long way. Um, and, you know, the next one, I mean, I'd probably hone in a little bit more on processing skills, you know, there and, and separate it a little bit from play speed. Um, because I think if you're a quick processor, uh, especially on, at guard and center, but tackle too, but guard and center, if you could process information quickly, you know, key and diagnose quickly what the defense is presenting you pre-snap, and then what they do post-snap, if you if you could make those split-second decisions, um, you're going to just play so much faster than maybe your athletic ability would you know would indicate. And since offensive linemen are you know the least athletic guys on the field by and large. They have to be smart. You know, you have to process stuff quickly. So if you have a guy who can do that, chances are he's going to execute his assignments at a high
1: level. Mm. I think it's, it's interesting, too, because you've now outlined four different traits, right? And when I think of who the best of the best are, okay, these guys check all four of these boxes. But there are so we kind of talked about this under the rubric of this guy's an NFL starter – well, you, know, you have 32 teams, five starters up front. Not all of these guys are going to check all of these boxes. I know there are plenty of starters in the NFL, guys that are starting, playing all 17 games, that might check two of these four boxes, right? And so uh, and sometimes it's a young player that's thrown into the lineup. And I, that was my one follow-up, I guess. When he goes to play strength, and you're because you do a lot of work uh, evaluating college offensive linemen, projecting them to the NFL – Certainly, there are so many guys that come from that level that don't have that play strength right away. And you say, all right, well, he's he's got these other traits to be able to work with. The play strength might take a year. It might take two years before we really, going into year three, before we really see a guy uh, kind of fill out and, and live up to that physical potential. How do you kind of gauge that in terms of trying to evaluate the, a guy's value and say, all right, look, he's got everything else, but the play strength's not quite there yet?
4: Yeah, it's it's funny you bring this up because I was just talking about this with some people. Um, and it's one of those things I'm wrestling with now and trying to figure out where I stand, but I, I honestly kind of lead or, or lean on that. I'm not factoring play strength in enough, um, especially for like first, second, third round picks, you know, because if you're expected to play, you know, relatively early the first or second year of your career, and you don't have that starter level play strength. I mean, you're probably not going to be that great of a player. I mean, it, it's just uh Cause I mean, if you can't hold the point of attack or reset the line of scrimmage, then those things are going to be, those things are going to happen to you. You know, you're going to fall off blocks and you're going to get the line of scrimmage reset on you. And if you do that consistently, obviously you're not going to play very long. So I think play strength, man, especially for those, you know, first and second day picks, like I'm going to start factoring that in a little bit more because, you know, I think of over the last couple of years, I've been evaluating these guys. Like, There was one guy, you know, Dylan Radunes was a guy like I I did not see the play strength, you know, and he was playing at FCS and he was getting knocked back on his heels left and right. And I was like, no, man, I I just don't see it with this guy. You know, I'd probably take him early day three, you know, and so far I think play strength is holding him back. But then, you know, I gave like a third round pick or third round grade, I think, or so to Robert Hainsey. And I watch him in preseasons now and I'm like, man, he's getting knocked back on his heels left and right. I mean he's really good with leverage and how to manipulate his body on blocks and stay attached and he's he's crafty and stuff like that but the play strength thing i think is going to be the his biggest hindrance this year you know as a starter for the bucks so it's like it really is a case by case basis but i'm starting to see kind of a trend line of like if you're going to be a first second or third round grade for me like the starter level play strength has to be there and i don't want to compromise on that because I feel like it's it's bit me a couple of times with some of these evaluations. Um, So, yeah, I I think play strength is one of those ones that I'm going to start valuing a little bit more
1: and I cheated a little bit on that follow-up because I probably bled into this question a little bit, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you about your process and you look back at how long you've been evaluating offensive linemen. What do you think has been the biggest area where you've evolved a little bit in terms of your thinking and your thought process when it comes to projecting and evaluating guys up front, especially uh, at offensive tackle?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say for offensive tackle specifically, just there's so many different ways to get the job done. If you have a baseline level of the traits that we talked about, and that's been hammered home, you know, you've been there at offense, offensive line masterminds. Like one of my biggest takeaways every year is like, man, every guy can do this in a different way. They have their own approach. They can tailor may tailor their skill set and their technique to fit their body and what they do, you know, what's comfortable for them. And there's so many different ways to win um, at the NFL level, as long as, again, if those baseline traits are there. So to me, uh, being flexible on body types uh, and, you know, what maybe the package looks a little different, but the ingredients still all there. And that's what I think of with like Rashawn Slater, even though I, you know, first round great. I mean, everyone thought Rashawn would be good, but like. There's other guys, too, um, just that are playing tackle, that have played tackle for for a while who may not have ideal physical traits, but if their play strength is really good, they're quick processors, they're athletic, they move well, and they have these core traits that we talked about, I mean, I I think uh, being a little bit more flexible on some of that stuff, um, I think, would be important. Um, And yeah, man, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing with tackle specifically, I think.
1: Yeah, I always struggle with, um, and this isn't just even a tackle, but I think across the board at a lot of different positions, like, you know, players like like Mitchell Schwartz, you know, where it's like uh, the, the physical traits, if you add all them up, you're not like, oh, man, like this guy's one of the best tackles in the league. But then you just watch how he plays the position, and you talk about like processing and, and technique, and you start getting into some of those other elements, and you're like, all right, well, that's what makes him so great. When then you watch a guy in the NFL in college, and you're like, "All right, well, this guy doesn't have traits, but I love the way he plays." But it's just tough to like say, like, "Oh yeah, like this guy could be a Mitchell Schwartz." You know what I mean? Like having those kinds of projections uh, can be tough from that aspect.
4: Yeah, and you know, if if we're trying to project like first round picks, maybe being a little less flexible on that. But I'm talking more of like you know just starter kind of guys, um, you know, as opposed to maybe a guy who's going to come in right away and be a you know, a very good starter or better or something like that. But you look at tackles, there's a lot of, you know, not a lot, but there's, if you look at the top 15 tackles, right and left. So 30 guys, I mean, there's several guys in there who are not very athletic, who don't maybe fit the dimensions. You know, I think of uh, Rob Havenstein, you know, sure. like year in year out, you know what you're getting with him. He's reliable. I mean, you know, on an Island against premier edge rushers, probably not going to go that great, but you know, and then another big thing, man, is like the scheme and the situation. That's a whole other, you know, can of worms. But um, yeah, things can be masked, masked, you know, depending on who you're playing for and you know, this the situation or whatnot. But Havenstein is a guy I think of, um, you know, at, at tackle. Ramcheck never tested or anything, but I, I would I would assume he would have probably tested pretty well. Um, you know, uh, let me think like left tackle. But, you know, of course, the Lando Brown, that's a different kind of body type who yeah. gets the job done. Um, I don't remember how Deion Dawkins tested, but definitely a different kind of body type for sure. Uh, Jonah Williams, you know, kind of underwhelming physically. Uh, Taylor Decker is big, but not the most athletic guy. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get, you know, starter level tackles, I think, in so many different shapes and sizes. So, yeah, if you're looking for, you know, top 10 first round grade. You know, you, you need to check boxes physically a little bit more than some of these other guys. Um, but even then, you don't always have to because some of those guys we you named the first and second round picks. So, yeah, I mean, if you could play – I was just going to say traits, that. Yeah, it, it's yeah. crazy, man. It's – Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's like, I was going to ask you like that as the final question was like uh, the landscape of the league and how you view like the value of this position. And, and some of those guys you just named like Jonah Williams was, uh, you know, a top 15 pick Taylor Decker. If he wasn't top 15, it was just outside the top 15. Right. And so a lot of these guys that will go high, you know, and even you know, there, there have been guys that haven't worked out that were taken in the first, uh, you know, 20, 25 picks. Uh, the kid that Atlanta took a couple of years ago, um, you know, to play right tackle where it's like, all right, well, I see, like it's it's more the position value kind of comes into play. Even the tra- if the traits don't sum up to, oh, this guy's a, a blue chip, you know, top twenty talent, but finding a starting tackle that can that can mean so much for a franchise.
4: Yeah, another one too to throw out there's Ronnie Stanley. You know, he didn't test well at all. You know, yep. so yeah, there, there's a lot, but. Um, you know, I, I, think it's interesting with left and right. I think left is still viewed by the NFL as a little bit more important, just well, based on salary, of course, I mean, left tackles yep. are much higher paid than right tackles, uh, top to bottom. And then if, you know, when I was doing my top 75 offensive line article and stacking left and right tackles, there's just like five to six, seven more, uh, above average or better left than right tackles. I think the talent is directed more on the left side still, now, whether right. that should be the case is a kind of a different question, but I think it still is. There's a little bit more talent on the left side than the right, and that's just kind of the way it is. Still,
1: I'll be interested to see if if things start to. And this, I don't think it's going to be a fast change, but like you know, even okay, you know. Uh... Uh, Mike McGlinchey, he he was a pretty high pick uh, now at right tackle. Uh, Certainly we've seen Tristan Wirfs go in the the top 15, entrenched right away at right tackle. Uh, The Eagles have uh, one of the best in the league over the last decade, Lane Johnson here on the right side. So I wonder if we'll start to see a little bit more acceptance of that instead of saying, okay, we got to move him over uh, to the left side. But uh, I don't think that that will be a a fast change. I think that will be a little bit of a slow burn.
4: Yeah. Penesul is another one. Yeah.
1: Great great point. Exactly.
4: So yeah, it's definitely trending in that direction. I think, especially if you have a guy already, you're much more comfortable to just put a guy on the right because you know, the value that you're going to get, you know, especially because of the pass rushers and how it's split evenly almost across the league in terms of quality. Yeah. I mean, I think it is kind of a slow process, like you said, but still right now the landscape, left is a little bit more talented and certainly higher paid. So, and I think that blind side aspect is still in the NFL's minds, right. um, you know, because of that, which I think there's some credence to that, but I don't know how much, you know, it's, it's interesting.
1: No doubt. Well, Brandon, really really appreciate you joining us once again here on the journey of the draft podcast presented by life brand. Make sure to check out all of Brandon's work, subscribe to the Substack trench warfare, follow him on Twitter at Brandon Thorne NFL. Brandon talk to you again soon, man.
4: All right, man. Thanks.
1: Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the scouting report. All right. Great stuff there from Brandon Thorne. Always great to pick his brain when it comes to offensive line play. Always fun to have Brandon on the show Uh, as we welcome back in Ben Fennel, Ben, this week here for Scouting Report, we're going to transition now to Eagles wide receiver A.J. Brown. The Eagles obviously trading a first-round pick, handing a, a huge contract to him here this uh, this offseason, day one of the NFL draft. I remember being on set uh, with Ella and with Ross Tucker uh, when the Eagles made the trade for A.J. Brown, just being blown away uh, at this addition. You and I watched him every single day out here uh, at Eagles training camp. and just stood out to us every single day. Certainly one of the best receivers in the National Football League. So I thought What better player to kind of start this segment off uh, than A.J. Brown? So both of us, I'm thinking we'll kind of share some Cliff Notes versions of what we saw from him in college and just kind of uh, see how he's transitioned to the NFL.
3: Yeah, it's fun. I think after being in the league for three seasons now, it's uh, an appropriate time to reflect back on what we saw at Ole Miss and how that skill set translated.
1: Yeah, so he came out in the 2019 draft. He was a two-year starter, uh, played for two different offenses, Hugh Freeze, then eventually Phil Longo in his final season, um, exclusively in the slot in 2017. And he did the same in 2018 until DK Metcalf got hurt, and that allowed him to move outside. He was the left wide receiver after Metcalf's injury, and I thought that that was big for him, uh, Ben, but um, solid size across the board, thick, bulky frame, I mean, six foot and a half, 226 pounds coming out at the combine. Uh, Pretty good athlete, especially for a guy uh, that big. And I thought he showed an impressive initial quickness for a 220-pound receiver, tying the snap well, often the very first skill player to get out of his stance. I thought that was notable uh, watching a very fast Ole Miss offense. Um, pretty crisp in terms of his ability to, to get in and out of breaks. One-cut routes like slants and posts where he just kind of had to go uh, jab, step, and create separation. He had that ability to be really, really smooth and sharp on those kinds of routes. Even on comebacks and curls, he had the ability to break down at the drive phase and fly out of his breaks. Uh, knew how to Change up his stride length and, and mess with defenders from snap to finish. And he could get a corner's hips flipped downfield on vertical routes. Uh, to me, like I thought he sold double moves really well. I wanted to see a little bit more consistency as a route runner, but at the end of the day, like he would go up and attack the ball in the air. He had a 53% contested catch rate, uh, which is a pretty good number uh, over the course of his career. He tracked the deep well, ball well over the shoulder. He rarely put the ball on the ground. It, it passes away from his frame, uh, on the move, behind him, up in the air. He had a 90.4 catchable catch rate, according to PFF. That's a really good number as well, so yeah, just really strong after the catch. That's carried through the league just over 7.5 yards after catch per reception good number uh, for a college receiver so um this is a guy that i thought the overall we've seen a lot of these things carry over i'm interested to kind of get some you know a look back at your notes uh, on aj brown
3: yeah he had a really interesting profile in that you know i thought he was an explosive receiver and obviously good size unique size and that he had kind of a squatty frame it was heavy yet explosive and fast you didn't always see that uh within the routes i think you saw the speed and the big box fades and the double moves mm. But this guy was an artist in getting open. Yep. He was a technician, and then you saw the elite athleticism, I feel like, after the catch.
1: Right, that was where he shined. Yeah. No
3: question. And I felt like he knew how to snap breaks on those one-cut routes. He knew how to subtly push off. This guy knew how to separate. And he knew how to separate in an NFL type of pedigree. And that it's not just size and ability. It's technique and the subtleties. And the little things you could get away with, too, is you know, part of the knack of getting open. It's tough out there. And you know, the little push-offs and using your play strength and using that 6'1", nearly 230-pound frame... That's part of his trait and how he won, and he had to. And I didn't feel like his quarterbacks helped him out a lot. I felt like Shea Patterson and Jordan Tiamo were kind of inconsistent with their accuracy. Thought he showed some really good ability to catch some errantly thrown balls, some ones that are not perfectly thrown. You saw the huge hands, the adjustments, and just that natural play, st- play strength and hand-eye coordination. Um, he was obviously an intriguing talent coming into Ole Miss as a kid that was drafted by the Padres in the 19th round coming yep. out of high school.
1: He and Kyler Murray were both the dra- same draft, and they were both guys that were drafted in baseball and football.
3: Yeah, no question. Um, and some of the comps I had written down, which was tough to find because the unique skill set were Andre Johnson, mm. who was 6'2", 230, running four fours out of Miami. Very yeah. unique to be that heavy and yep. explosive. And not particularly long. I mean, Calvin Johnson was 230, but he was 6'5. Yep. This is really like a Sterling Sharp. Sterling Sharp was six foot, two twenty-five, and would weightlift with the offensive lineman. You know, this is a really unique type of NFL receiver. Eric Mold's also type of uh, that type of skill set as well. So I think AJ Brown is a really fun receiver. He's a running back playing slot out there with the running back level of explosiveness and the playmaking ability. Just not a six three, six four type of length profile you would come to expect.
1: What were some of the traits that you feel, like reflecting back in your notes, that you feel have carried over best with him from college to the NFL?
3: Well, receivers at the very start, it's your job to catch the football. Right. He catches the football. Catches everything. And I got news for you. It's not always going to be perfect. Yep. And you're going to have a corner on your back. And you're going to have a ball thrown slightly behind you or slightly high or, hey, that bang post over the middle that's slightly, uh, you know, around your forehead even though you wanted it around your chin. And you're going to take a shot in the stomach. He does that. He catches the football. And that's your job at the beginning of the day as a receiver. Now the next trait, play strength. Getting off jams, winning at the top of routes, winning at the catch point, being a competitive blocker, breaking tackles after the catch, taking hits at the catch point like I just talked about. The number two traits, hands and play strength, that's all I think he wins with, hands and play strength. Yes, he runs 4'4", yes, he's 230, yes, he's athletic. I think it's hands and play strength is how it uh, AJ Brown wins.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, the yards after catch element, I mean, that's such a big part of what he brings to the table. And I think that that is something that, you know, has carried over when you look at, uh, you know, his numbers over the course of his career, uh, both in college and in the NFL. He's averaging over six yards after the catch per reception since entering the league. And I mentioned what that number was. It was over seven and a half uh, in college. That's something that is really impressive. I mean, how many
3: times have we seen on the practice field where Darius Slay is Velcroed to him? He is up his butt in the route, and you see them hand fighting. You know, he's swatting his hand down, Slay gets back on top. Swatting it down, see that ball come in, gets a little bit of an arm bar, push off, maybe surges into Slay, and then breaks back out at the catch point. What is that? That's play strength. Yep. That's being competitive. That's just being a dog, being strong, not, not backing down because the corner is, has maybe leverage on you. Fight in the route, fight in the stem, climb back on him, fight at the catch point. What am I keep saying? Fight, fight, fight.
1: Play through contact. There's,
3: well, there's not much 4-4 can
1: yeah, do in that right. situation. Yep, yep. I need
3: you to go out there and fight. And yep. A.J. Brown fights and catches the ball. And I appreciate that so much in his game.
1: Yeah, I think that to me, like that, that's something that has become such a uh, – important quality for me, not, not even just a receiver, but like across the board is just playing through contact. It's a contact sport. So like being able to play through, not just like, Oh, this guy's a tough guy and he makes hits. Like, no, like play through contact, be able to, whatever your objective was before the snap, Accomplish that objective while dealing with contact, and I think AJ Brown kind of you know is that to a T. Um, I think you, the one point you brought up uh, that I had looked at in my notes was like I had a question about him as a blocker, despite his like size and physicality, because he wasn't asked to do it a lot. They were a, such a heavy RPO offense that it wasn't often where it was like, oh yeah, they're running inside zone and he's in the slot and it's, he's play side and he's got to block uh, the nickel or Sam linebacker. No, because he's running like slant routes and bubble screens on those plays. And I wanted to be able to see more of that, and that's something where again you're you're kind of a prisoner of how he was used in college. And you have to, there are some things you have to be willing to project and there are things that you have to understand. Like, it's a, what do we always say? Understand the limitations of the tape.
3: You know, I have a note in his profile. He came off the field in 22 personnel sets. 22 means two backs, two tight ends. There's only room for one receiver out there. Yep. Oh no, we came off the field. Well, they did have D.K. Metcalf out there. Yeah, right. He was 6'5", 235 And ran 4'3", yeah, No question. That was probably a pretty good blocker as well. So, you know, you have to really consider the full body, who else was on the roster, and what each of their skill sets are, you know, put them in positions to be successful.
1: Yeah, typically when you have those 22 personnel sets, you want that speed receiver outside to really keep the defense honest. Like, all right, it could be play action and a deep ball. Or the 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 one-on-one guy. You know, we
3: see that in the NFL too. Typically 22 personnel, that extra receiver is your big play guy, your one-on-one guy. Well, AJ Brown is competitive, but and you know he can obviously win one on one. But when it's six foot two thirty AJ Brown and six five DK Metcalf, yeah, DK, we'd rather throw the fade to. It just is what it is.
1: There were a couple of receivers last year that we talked about in terms of like a making an AJ Brown comparison. Is there anybody that we've studied so far uh, here in this class that laid, like shades of AJ Brown at all? It's tough. Man. I, I had struggled. I, with I set this. that
3: up with the NFL comps and just how rare that is. I mean, yeah. I have to go back to Sterling Sharp to really feel good about a comp. That's bizarre. I mean, Andre Johnson played, you know, 20 years ago. It's tough to, these don't come out every year. So, as much as there's some guys with size and play strength I like, you they know, don't Bryce, have
1: the play, they don't have the, the Bryce same Ford skill set. a yeah. grown man
3: out there yep. playing college. You know, yep. Dante Dimas is going to be 220. Cedric Tillman plays like a grown man in the SEC. are all perimeter players. Like, and they're all 6'3. Yeah, right. Yep. You know, so the one guy I've written down, which may not be a quite a household name yet, although I thought okay. he had a pretty good opener, was Jonathan Mingo.
1: Okay, from uh, Mississippi State. Yes,
3: yeah. um, who is 6'1", 225. No, he's actually an Ole Miss as well.
1: Oh, is he all Ole Miss? Yeah, 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 you're right, you're yeah, right. He is an Ole Miss. That's, that's right, good call.
3: of weapons out there. Yeah. He had a nice opener. This kid is rocked up. He takes a lot of shots over the middle. He looks like a running back playing slot out there. Yep. So Jonathan Mingo, we'll see if he can maybe uh, follow in the wake of A.J. Brown.
1: I want to look because I know I've got some numbers there on, uh, on Jonathan He's been around Mingo. for a
3: little bit. I believe he's a senior. So, yep. you know, he's uh, been in the SEC for a number of years. I think he had a decent season last year. Uh, with Matt Corral. Um yep.
1: Yeah, he had uh, 22 catches, under 400 yards, three touchdowns last year. Very similar production uh, the year before in 2020. He's been a four-year player for them. So this is a guy that's consistently been in the lineup, Jonathan Mingo, but has n- uh, been unable to uh, kind of like take that next step. And so anyone that's looking at like uh, efficiency metrics, like yards per route run, he's like way down the list because he's been out there yeah, but, but yeah. hasn't been like a featured part of that offense because We're the of the that
3: came out last year, like Braylon Sanders? Sanders. And and, else, um, he kind of came out of nowhere. Drummond. Yeah, yeah that's how Drummond, Drummond yeah. uh, came out last year. So I think it's Mingo's time to shine here, but he's listed 6'2, 225. Yep. And I've heard he's, he might even be heavier than that. So that's interesting. More of a 6'1, 230 type of profile, which is the A.J. Browns of the world. So not saying he's that level of prospect, that yeah. level of athlete, but body type is just rare to find out there. I scoured my running back sheet. Interesting. As well, okay. Just to see if there was maybe somebody that fit the body type out there that, hey, if they throw some passes to on third down. Yeah, maybe I'll stretch and strain and try to make the connection out there. But definitely a unique skill set, unique body type.
1: So, like, for me, uh, to to that point, I really struggled finding, like, an apples-to-apples comparison in this class. So I almost – because you can't find the body type with the skill set or you can find the skill set you don't have the body type. I went more with the latter. Uh, So I'm looking at um, a guy that we talked about last week in a segment. I presented uh, uh, Brandon Ayuk and DJ Moore when we were talking about Kayshawn Butte. Well, the, that, that was kind of a receiver. And look, I've watched 18 guys, so we're, I'm going to watch end up like, what, like 50 receivers by the time it's all said and done for this class. So maybe I'll find someone better. But when I look at Keyshawn Butte, the body type is not the same. He's six foot, 190 pounds is what he's listed at LSU. So you are talking like a 30-pound th- difference. Uh, but in terms of uh, play style, and uh, so I look at him like, all right, well, he is at his best. Yards after catch, uh, you know, get the ball in his hands. That's where he plays fastest. That's where he plays biggest. And to your point, the, you said that about AJ Brown earlier. I feel like that's a, a kind of a similar quality there. I thought that he played bigger than his listed size, Keyshawn Boutte, when I studied him last year. Um, there were a lot, I just ended up looking at the notes and saying like, yeah, there were a lot of the same things I wrote down. It's just in a much different package than with AJ Brown. So it's, not, it's me, not an apples to apples comparison. If
3: you asked me last year, is he more of a Traylon Burks or is he more Chigo Conquo? I might say Chico Conquo.
1: Wow. And Conquo was a uh day early day three tight end by the Tennessee Titans. Six uh, two, from Maryland. Yep.
3: Literally shredded, looks tore up the combine. Yeah, right. Yeah, but he was a full back, H back type. But right. squatty, athletic, thick, rocked up, he, that body type wise, that's what he looks like. Yep. Skill set wise, he plays like Traylon Burks. Yep. Traylon Burks is six Um Not to say A.J. Brown is stumpy or small by any means, but when we're talking about receiver prospects and when you get into the 220, 225 profile, typically that comes with a little bit of length as well uh, to kind of get you to that weight.
1: Yeah. It's like I said, like uh, even like it, it feels silly, even like saying Boutte because like it's a 30 pound difference, like 30 pounds. <laughs> it's, it's a huge, huge difference, uh, in terms of listed weight and we'll see what Boutte comes in at, uh, when he eventually comes out. But, uh, Ben, this is fun. We'll do this on a weekly basis here on the show, just kind of uh, a little bit of an Eagle spin to the journey of the draft podcast, but also kind of reflecting on, on what it could mean uh, for players in this class. And we'll, uh, we be back later this week, uh, previewing week two. Ben, you'll be back with us uh, with a full preview. We've got Ross Tucker, Greg Cosell is going to be on the show a little bit later this week as well. All here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand.